And now, Dan Happel's Connecting the Dots. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. Thank my lucky stars to be living here today Where the flag still stands for freedom And they can't take that away And I'm proud to be an American Where at least I know I'm free And I won't forget the men who died Who gave that right to me Today, our guests are going to be Stephen Friend, FBI whistleblower, uh, and someone who was a special agent with the CIA, or I'm sorry, the FBI, (laughs) Freudian slip there, Uh, FBI, and he was one of the gentlemen that testified before the the House Special Committee on the Weaponization of Government, and uh, Stephen's got a great story to tell. Uh, He was involved in, uh, well, they tried to get him involved in the January 6th arrest program, and and he said, this isn't right. This isn't working. Uh, We cannot do SWAT raids on old people that just went to D.C. to uh, voice their concern about the election. And uh, as a result, they, uh, they terminated him. Uh, put him on leave without pay, and uh, took away his security clearance. So we're going to be hearing that story. And then we're going to be joined uh, a little bit later in the uh, uh, podcast by a gentleman uh, by the name of Nate Kane, who is also a FBI and intelligence whistleblower. And he's going to be talking about Uranium One, the Clinton Foundation, and all the corruption that went on with the Clinton Foundation and Hillary Clinton uh, prior to and during the election. So we've got a full two hours, and it's going to be a fascinating discussion. I think you might want to stick around and uh, hear that discussion. Man, you get the best guests, and I definitely want to hear from uh, uh, Steve there because, I mean, the Jeremy Brown case, it sounds like right exactly what happened, uh, uh, the mm-hmm. same scenario, and I want to find out, you know, what, what Steve's take is on that because... It's a wonderful brave man, story. Brave man. He is a brave man, and he's a real patriot, and he stood up against the FBI... Uh, against the leadership who was bound and determined to try to uh, demonize anyone involved in January 6th uh, on the march on the Capitol. So, uh, Stephen, uh, 
I know that uh, you, you've you've been my guest on Brighton TV, but this is uh, brand new to uh, Patriot Soapbox. Uh, you have a book called True Blue. Incidentally, we will promote that book during the uh, podcast. But uh, Stephen wrote a terrific book called True Blue, and it's about his experiences uh, going from a beat cop to FBI special agent uh, to whistleblower. So with that said, uh, Steve, welcome to the program. Thank you for being our guest today. And uh, please uh, tell us a little of your background and how you got involved in uh, this whole freedom movement uh, from, from uh, really, I, I would have to say, from experience, because you saw how things were being weaponized against average people. And being the man of honor and the patriot that you are, you said, I can't do this. Anyway, Steve, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, my, my journey with the FBI started in 2014. I was initially sent to the Midwest to work on Indian reservations, violent crimes that occurred on, on, on those, uh, those native lands out there. Spent seven years in uh, Northwest Iowa. And then the, uh, that's sort of important to my backstory because it gave me the opportunity to get very familiar with the way the FBI investigations are supposed to be carried out. I opened about 200 cases, uh, arrested about 150 violent criminals, was also a member of the SWAT team when I was out there. And it all culminated with my eventual transfer, though, to Florida. My uh, my hometown is in Georgia, so wife and I wanted to get closer to family. We elected to take a transfer to Daytona Beach in 2021, and I took the transfer with the understanding that I was going to work on child pornography cases and human trafficking cases. But after a few months of doing that, I was reassigned to work on domestic terrorism, which in my office primarily meant January 6th. And up to that point, I hadn't had any exposure to January 6th cases. I'd just been working the cases that were in front of me. Uh, but pretty quickly after getting transferred to the Joint Terrorism Task Force in my office uh, and having access to those cases, it was very clear to me that the FBI is departing from the rules for carrying forward investigations properly and, and also is inclined to use more aggressive tactics to arrest individuals who may or may not have committed crimes. But... Uh, using a SWAT team for somebody in my office uh, to to bring him into custody when he had already pledged to be cooperative. To me, being an experienced agent and being an experienced SWAT operator seemed like an unnecessary risk to the subject safety, to the public safety, to the FBI personnel safety, and ultimately made the decision to come forward to my management and express my concerns that the FBI is manipulating the crime stats to make domestic terrorism look more uh, uh, more widespread and then certainly at a greater risk to the public than it actually is. And then also using these very aggressive arrest tactics. The FBI did not agree with me and contrived my suspension uh, within 30 days of me coming forward. And that happened in September. I was uh, escorted out of the FBI building. Uh, and uh, and then that was when my journey as a whistleblower really kind of kicked off and uh, and, and has led to my, my current uh, spot on your podcast right now. Mm -hmm. Well, you, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, doing the uh, FBI investigations uh, in uh, on some of the uh, Indian reservations, and that is there's a lot of areas there that uh, are really difficult. It 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 is an experience I think that uh, 
uh, an FBI agent, I think that might be some of the best experience you could have because uh, it's, it's so tragic. I, I, I live in Montana. I've uh, got good friends that are Native Americans. I've uh, been around the reservation system uh, most of my life, and uh, it's absolutely astounding some of the horrible things that happen uh, on the reservations because of, uh, frankly, such a, uh, I guess what I would have to say is uh, we, we destroyed much of their culture and then we created the liberal plantation to uh, give them just enough money to survive on. And uh, it's, it's created a culture that's just incredibly tragic. And um, so you saw that, you were there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's, a, it's, it's an amazing experience. When I was in the, uh, in the Army with Corps of Engineers, uh, it was during uh, the um, uh, mid-70s when Russell Means was uh, uh, doing, uh, you know, having some uh, uh, sit-ins and some, you know, frankly, violent demonstrations. Uh, and they asked me to uh, look at some of the uh, reservation situations. And as a result of that, I determined just exactly how, how uh, tragic the whole federal, well, what I see on the Indian reservations, quite frankly, uh, Steve, and you may disagree with me on this, but I see that as a blueprint for what they plan to do to the rest of society. You basically defeat everybody, put them in a bad situation, uh, give them just what they need to survive on, and then you tell them that if you don't toe the mark, you're gonna end up losing everything. And that is, to me, the Indian reservations are a perfect example of what uh, is planned for all of humanity uh, down the road when the New World Order has complete control of everything. Now, that's just my uh, casual observation. But uh, anyway, um, when, you were, uh, when you were with the FBI and they determined that the January Sixers were a domestic threat, uh, kind of describe the internal things that were going on uh, in the agency that led them to that. Was there, it, it, it was mostly politics, but maybe describe the process, and it gives people, I think, an insight into how incredibly manipulated uh, law enforcement has become and how politicized. Yeah, the, the FBI uses a rule book. It's called the DIOG, the Domestic Investigations and Operations Guide. And that is the, the guidance that you use to carry forward an investigation. It gives you rules and parameters and tools you're allowed to use depending on the, the level of investigation that you're involved in. And it sets out very specifically the way that you're supposed to open up cases. So take January 6th. Typically, that's a one incident. It happened in Washington, D.C. It should be one case run out of Washington field office with however many subjects that they're going to pursue. And if those people live around the country and it's inconvenient, say, to, to fly a special agent from Washington, D.C. to to Florida to interview a subject, then they would do what's called cutting a lead to the agents down in Florida who would do that on their behalf. And, and that could be an interview, collecting evidence, even arresting somebody. That would be the way properly within the within the diog that you would do it. You can 
elect to do what they did, which was open a separate case for every single person, which is incredibly manipulative because now you've taken one case and made it into thousands of cases. Mm -hmm. And they made the decision that they were going to open up a different case and then tie it to the jurisdiction where that person lived. So now, again, if somebody lived in Florida and, and went into the Capitol on January 6th, if they lived in Jacksonville, the Jacksonville field office would be responsible for investigating that case and, and um, liaising with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. if they were going to bring charges on that individual. So now we've created this illusion that there's thousands of domestic terrorism terrorists and that they're spread around the country. This is all still within the FBI's rules. It's very atypical but allowable. The ultimate decision, which was sort of revealed the game that was going on, is the fact that Washington, D.C., still stood up a task force in uh, at Washington field office to look into January 6th. And that task force was doing investigations and giving directives. So in my office in Daytona Beach, even though we were on paper, the case agents and the case belonged to us, and by the rules, we would be uh, making all necessary decisions to bring that investigation forward as we deemed fit because we had the necessary training and, uh, and experience to do that. We were taking orders from outside actors in Washington, D.C. They were telling us, go do this, go do that. We need you to do this. We need you to do that. Uh, and, and that, to me, was a departure that was, uh, was something that should be discoverable to defense. I'm a believer in, in the Constitution, a believer in due process. If I use the wrong color evidence tape, I have to document that. The FBI is by the book, everything. But we're not going to document this incredible departure from the way we're bringing out these investigations. And, and then it just leads you to the question of why are we doing that? And I posed that and was told that in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, that very question was raised. And high-ranking officials within the Department of Justice and the FBI had said that this was to get buy-in. Now, you could interpret buy-in to mean one of two things. One, we don't think you're going to do a good job if your name is not on the case, which is a pretty macabre view of your workforce. Mm -hmm. Or secondly, this is a boondoggle that we're going to allow everybody to get in on because it's going to be tied to uh, promotions within the FBI. If you can say you worked on this enormous case, the most significant case in the history of the Department of Justice, according to, uh, to our attorney general uh, or the FBI director. You could also boost the funding for the FBI because now we've seen their their funding get surged by billions of dollars, and it's frankly all tied to January 6 stats that they're able to claim domestic terrorism is a significant threat. And finally, the senior executive service members are each getting bonuses between thirty and fifty thousand dollars because people are hitting their subordinates are hitting these quota systems that that the FBI establishes for itself using a process called integrated program management, which is essentially a traffic cop of the ticket book where they have to open up a certain number of cases and get a certain number of arrests every year. And it's tied to bonus compensation for the senior executives within the FBI. That's amazing. And what, what you're talking about, <laughs> you, you saw some of the January Sixers. I know you were uh, uh, someone who, like me, didn't see a whole lot there. Um, I, I, I saw, I was actually there. I, I went to, uh, D.C. on January 6th. I did not go to the Capitol. I went there to show support for uh, President Trump because I did believe. Uh, I have many friends in uh, uh, media and some in intelligence that uh, gave me some pretty compelling evidence that uh, the election was stolen. 
And uh, so I went there to show support as well as a whole bunch of other friends of mine uh, for the president. We were there, we saw uh, the speech and I have to tell you, it was very easy. This was the first Trump rally and that's what really what it was. It was about a million and a half people Trump rally, but uh, it was the first Trump rally I've ever seen where there were people out in the audience screaming, screaming obscenities and trying to get people fired up and people to uh, do violence and things like that. We knew they were agent provocateurs. We knew that. I mean, those of us that were there in the ellipse watching this whole thing, uh, we said, you know, the, the, those aren't Trump people. Uh, the people that we had to every one of the, uh, I was at four of the major uh, uh, Trump rallies and sat very close to the president, actually. And uh, two of them, I was within probably 30 feet of the president. And we never saw that kind of, uh, you know, cursing and violence and that sort of thing. It was very, very open, very good uh, organization. What happened on January 6th was obviously not good. I'm not going to go out on a limb and say how much of it was staged, but some of it certainly was. And it, it was not a good thing, but uh, in comparison to the Antifa and BLM riots all over the country that had burned uh, literally city blocks and uh, hurt many people, had a lot of problems. Uh, compared to that, it was pretty tame, yet it was called the greatest insurrection and uh, riot in modern history since the Civil War. Now, I don't know about uh, about anybody else, but it never even came close to that. Uh, the The level of violence there was minimal compared to that, and a lot of it was uh, because of the overreaction by the uh, Capitol Police. Uh, no one was caught with a firearm uh, that was part of that January 6th event, and all four of the deaths that occurred uh, were against the uh, the, the Trump people, with the exception, there was one death that occurred, and that was uh, a D.C. officer who had a stroke, and his own people refused to take care of him. Uh, there's, I, I don't mean to ramble with this, but uh, Stephen, your 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 inside uh, view of this thing. How do you think this was? Trumped up, as it were, or staged to make things look a whole lot worse than they really are. We can start at the end to, to begin with, and, and that was with the recent whistleblower that came out a few weeks ago, and it was sort of overshadowed by the IRS whistleblowing that's gone on. But this individual came out anonymously and talked about the FBI executive, uh, Paul Abate, the deputy assistant director, who mentioned on a call in February in, Jan in 2021, so a few weeks after the incident, that any sort of comparison in the FBI's response to January 6th to the FBI's lack of a response to the civil unrest we saw in 2020, uh, that that individual who voiced that would be uh, canceled, essentially, and, and they should look for employment outside that. I think the FBI is mm -hmm. is bought in lock, stock, and, and barrel to this narrative 
that January 6th is the worst thing that's happened in the history of the country. And and I think there's some uh, political activism attached to that. There's also some careerism attached to it. I mean, if you can say you were in some sort of leadership capacity on this case, you can put that on your resume for, for the rest of your career and elevate within the FBI. Now, as far as the event itself, uh, yeah, I have I have my own sort of ideas. I think that it's not a perfect puzzle. It's not like there was a, a evil Bond villain in a black you know suit with a cat on his lap, sort of contriving the entire incident. I think it was a confluence of multiple factors. Uh, one of the largest being the uh, the use the, or misuse of informants, and the fact that there's a demand for domestic terrorism stats within the national security apparatus in this country that vastly outstrips supply. And as a result of that, there are informants that are sent out by the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, a whole slew of, of federal law enforcement agencies with the nexus to national security. And those informants only get paid when they have good intelligence. And as a result of that, they will infiltrate groups and not knowing that there's other informants within the groups who are all trying to get intelligence to get paid. And they will ramp up the group and and propose ideas so that in effect you have not a government uh, run organization, but certainly one that's infiltrated and heavily influenced by individuals who are trying to get people to do things that are not predisposed to do. So I think we saw that as an, a great example outside of January 6th context in Michigan with the, the kidnapping plot against Gretchen Whitmer. I think very similarly, we had a lot of that involved on January 6th. And, and I think among just people who were were there sort of to support President Trump. I think President Trump brought a lot of people into the political arena who had never were pretty novice with that. And they were very mm -hmm. excited about his his presidency and had just were inexperienced with it. And they had questions legitimate about the outcome of the 2020 election and went to Washington to support him in his speech and then also to exercise what they believed to be their First Amendment right to gather and to petition and uh, protest and then take their their grievances and redress them with the uh, with the Congress before it certified the election. And I could almost imagine a scenario that you could have play out in your head where it's almost like the miracle on 34th Street and seeing where they bring in the letters to Santa Claus to the judge. And I think that there was that vision of we're just going to walk through the Capitol and they can see how many people have questions and we'll take it, they'll take it in good faith, and then they will stop this process and do a legitimate accounting of what actually happened on the election. Uh, and, and you could see that that coming into somebody's mind, and they, they weren't intending to be parading or uh, impeding a, or an official proceeding as they've been accused of doing, uh, which is just frankly a trumped up uh, charge, uh, no pun intended. And, uh, and, and as a result of all these influences and on top of the provocateurs that, that, were, that were there, uh, you wind up with the perfect storm and that we saw that got played out on January 6th. Well, uh, Steve, one of the um, outcomes of the January 6th event was that the hearings that were scheduled and the discussions that were scheduled uh, in Congress that evening never happened. And it's my, uh, I guess, my opinion that uh, this was staged in a provocateur event with the idea that uh, it would stop those hearings from happening and it would uh, demonize anybody who questioned the election. Is that a legitimate uh, concern on my part? Is that, uh, is that completely uh, uh, unjustified in thinking that way? I think you have a reasonable concern, but 
at this point, the the vast amount of questions that surrounded the outcome of the 2020 election, it was this entire event was completely avoidable if a actual uh, audit of the election results had been and taken forward and had been legitimately pursued, as opposed to the the show that we saw where it was like uh, this the the, the fantastical way that election could be stolen versus the the very plausible way you know, if you're going to have a mail-in election uh, by definition it is not secure mm-hmm. and as a result of that there was always going to be questions and there's just the frank refusal to even uh to even take that idea up and the fact that we were told by our media repeatedly that this was the safest and the most secure election in the history of the country, that's factually not true. And and the fact true. that they were so adamant about that point, I think, angered a lot of people. And uh, as a result of that, we saw that pent up frustration eventually spark this this violent outrage that we had from some people. And and I, I kind of share your sentiment about January 6th. There were bad things that happened that day and people that broke the law uh, should be held accountable for that. But I also yeah. think that there was a lot of people that were there and sort of caught up in it. Uh, and they were, they were didn't either didn't commit the crimes that they have been forced because of the, uh, the bottomless pit that is the federal government's uh, money supply that they can just wait people out and, and, uh, and force them to plead guilty to things just to uh, get it over with and get it behind them, move on with their lives. And that, and that's just not, in keeping with the oath of office that I took, where I wanted to protect innocent people from from the bad guys, from from being victims of fraud or force, and uh, I don't see the I don't see the victims here, and uh, that's it, that was one of the things that I expressed. And, and again, I'm a, a system idealist. There was no politics to it. Uh, I didn't have a dog in the fight of the election outcome. I didn't vote for either major party uh, candidate. So uh, there was no sour grapes on my part. I've always just been the person that was the follow the rules. That's uh, we're, we, I have to be buttoned up in whatever I do. And I didn't care if they were 100% winning on all these cases, uh, because if the case had my name on it and I knew we were departing from the rules, it was incumbent on me to follow those rules or at least document why we had departed from them. And the FBI was unwilling to do that, which means that they're more worried about the exposure uh, that of these practices and the actual practices themselves being inconsistent with the law and with the Constitution. I'm going to ask you a real uh, straightforward question, and that is, how do you see the uh, departure from the rank and file FBI agents and the people like yourself that uh, uh, see their role as being uh, to create a just uh, system in society and and to be part of a justice system that is truly for all the people and uh, the upper echelons of the FBI, the leadership, and uh, how politicized that is. I'd, I'd lo- I, I don't want to put you on a spot, but I, I, know, I know there's a huge dichotomy between rank and file and some of the uh, really, really uh, politicized leadership. There's a massive gap between leadership, or I'll call the management and rank and file. The management process, if you have any ambition to enter into that, has to start very early in your career. Within about six years, you are climbing that ladder. Uh, and as a result of that, you are elevating people who have almost no time of any substance in the field. And they are now managing areas where they have either limited or no experience whatsoever. 
So how do they promote? The way that they promote is to attach themselves to, to cases or to initiatives, which they can claim credit for, even though they might have minimal interaction with it. And that's why January 6th has been blown up. And, and, and anybody who has ambitions to promote will want to keep that gravy train going. Uh, and, and it's, uh, it's similar to, I've used the, uh, the comparison to the movie Jurassic world where the Vincent D'Onofrio character wants to use velociraptors to chase terrorists. And, and that is the way that the management system in the FBI works. You don't promote because you use a tried and true practice, best practices. We can use a SEAL team to go get the, the terrorists. We can use a drone strike to go get the terrorists. Well, that's already been done. We have to come up with something new, sexy, and novel. So we'll use dinosaurs because it breathes well. I can make a nice PowerPoint out of it, and I'll use that on my resume. And that is a very self-selecting process as a result of that, because if your default setting is to be small government, you're looking for, let's get rid of the waste, the fraud, the abuse, and just get back to basics, just the facts, let's work our cases. But if you're a left-leaning person, you're good with spending government money to come up with new initiatives, to invent a solution, and then look for a problem to apply it to. So I think that the default of a lot of people within the management of the FBI is to be left left to center. Uh, and then they have to make that pilgrimage to Washington, D.C. fairly regularly, and you can't help but uh, be struck by the osmosis that then seeps in, and they bring that back out to the field. Uh, and, and they're just not interested in the law enforcement aspect as I am. I, I consider myself a law enforcement professional. Uh, I took an interest in my cases. I uh, wanted to hone my craft. I would go back and listen to interviews to think about how I could have done it better, almost like watching game tape for a, for a football team. Uh, and I took the uh, the Constitution very seriously and, and wanted to follow it. But in my meetings with executives who were pretty high ranking, it was like I was speaking a different language to them. When I said the, the term due process, they had no idea what I was speaking about. <laughs> wow. And then you compare that to the rank and file. And I think a lot of people uh, within the rank and file might share my sentiment, but uh, have deluded themselves with this notion that they have to provide for their family. They can't risk losing their job uh, or they're just following orders, which historically is, is not uh, going to smile too kindly on them. There's, there's no precedent for that being a good outcome. And I think that they've seen the retribution that the whistleblowers have faced at the hands of the FBI and the media and the Democratic Party, and then people don't want to take that on. And, and then finally, I think that there's a huge number of people that this is just a government job. This is a job where you can have a lot of money for not a whole lot of work and a lot of benefits and just kind of ride it out. And uh, and, and that's just the, the nature of man is to do... Uh, least amount of work necessary to get by. And, and uh, that's that opportunity presents itself to a large portion of the FBI. That's kind of a sad thing, but you're right. I, I know that uh, a lot of people in government service, they don't start out thinking that they're going to be basically getting a, a free ride, but it kind of ends up that way uh, for an awful lot of people because they it's self-justified. It's it's a natural process. Um, the, the leadership that's uh, in the FBI right now, you said there is a a, ten, a tendency a left uh, leaning bias. Uh, could you maybe uh, amplify that a little bit because it has become so politicized, and it's obvious that. Uh, we are trying to create terrorists that don't exist, and we're ignoring the ones that do exist. 
Yeah, I think that uh, in my experience with with management, any, any uh, and this is anecdotal, but uh, the plural of anecdote is data. And uh, you know, I had leadership say things to me or, or put out to the to the rank and file things like, I take the most recent uh, uh, Pride Month that we had to experience in my offices. There were full Pride flag displays put up in rooms, and uh, after the row uh, overturn hearing. Uh, decision came out. There were emails that were put around about the law decrying the loss of women's rights. I reached out uh, in the, when the leak happened for the row decision, and I reached out to some crisis pregnancy centers in my area because I thought that they might be a good uh, resource for me for potential trafficking and then also potential victims of domestic terrorism. And uh, the response that I got from leadership was ultimately, that was fine, but you really need to focus on abortion clinics because we're mostly concerned about them being the victims of right-wing domestic terrorism. And I think that the uh, the FBI has now uh, turned its its attention to uh, to the political enemies of the the ruling elite, which is uh, arguably communist at this point. And and historically, I think the FBI always has done the bidding of uh, of the, the ruling elite and preserve the, the status quo that those individuals wanted. And the Venn diagram for upholding the constitution might overlap with protecting the status quo. So we take the 1940s as an example, and the FBI went after communists. Everybody, I think, sort of thought that the FBI was on, on the side of, of the good actors in that one. But uh, you can come forward another couple of decades, and now the FBI is sending letters to MLK telling him to kill himself because the people in charge didn't like MLK very much, and the FBI was all too happy to do their bidding. And uh, and, and now we're in, in 2023, we're uh, last September, the president uh, stood in front during his red speech at Independence Hall and said that Republicans were anti-government and white supremacist, and the FBI's Two of their top priorities on counterterrorism are white supremacy and anti-government uh, extremism. So the FBI is doing the bidding of, of the, the Biden administration, and it's not consistent with uh, our country's founding or traditions, because a week ago we celebrated 56 men who signed a document that uh, you could argue was very anti-government. Mm -hmm. Very. As a matter of fact, they, <laughs> they listed uh, the founding fathers. I've seen the tape. Uh, as uh, would have been considered uh, uh, domestic terrorists. Uh, that was in a tape of a, I believe it was an FBI tape that I saw that. People think that this is a brand new thing, but if they go back to 2009, uh, or maybe it was 2010, Janet Napolitano, who was Obama's uh, 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 Homeland Security Director, came out with a, a document, I've got a copy of it here somewhere, it was like a 56-page document on domestic terrorism, and it outlined who the domestic terrorists would be, and it didn't cover things like radical Islam and things like that. They were talking about Ron Paul supporters, people who uh, drove around, had a constitution in their pocket or in their car, people who uh, claim to be uh, patriots, and especially white people that claim that, uh, were to be considered domestic terrorists. This is back 13 years ago, 14 years ago. This is not new, but the fact is, is they've amped it up, haven't they? 
They have, and they have the tools now to, to carry it forward. I mean, I think uh, J. Edgar Hoover would uh, be incredibly pleased with the resources that are at the FBI's fingertips now to go after his enemies or enemies of, of uh, the, the party that's in power. I take the, the Patriot Act. And there was a whole bunch of Ron Paulites uh, back in the early 2000s who were yelling and screaming about, about FISA and Section 702 and the dangers of that. And there are unfortunately uh, not enough people who would you consider maybe conservative or right of center or constitutionally driven that uh, that heeded those those cautions from the from the Paulites. And as a result of that, now the FBI has this huge array of tools at its fingertips and it can go after anybody that who it deems to be uh, problematic, let's say, for uh, for those who are in charge. Well, we've created an American gulag system and uh, uh, all I can say is that what we what we've done to this country to law enforcement is absolutely tragic. I know you were planning on only being on for a half an hour, but uh, I've got a friend of yours uh, on as well. I guess you know Nate Kane pretty well, and uh, I I would love to have a little bit of interaction if you have time, uh, because Nate was one of the original whistleblowers when he tried to expose. Uranium One and the Clinton Foundation. Um, I, I I am very interested in hearing that story, and I want to uh, invite you. If you can stay around for a while, you're welcome to. Please. Uh, I actually have another commitment, but I leave you in good hands. Uh, Nate's uh, Nate's the OG whistleblower, so uh, good to see him, and okay. thank you very much for having me today. Well, hey, thank good to you. Good to see you too, Steve. Right. Thanks. All right, Nate, uh, welcome, my friend. I, I know we've never met, uh, and I've never even talked to you in person, but I guarantee you, uh, from what I've read, you and I will become fast friends because what we are concerned about has nothing to do with uh, politics or extremism or anything else other than the fact that we see our country going down the tube we're losing our constitution, we're losing our Christian focus, we're losing everything that made this country great. And um, I, I, I know that you've been concerned about that for a long time. You have uh, been, you were uh, uh, in the U.S. Army, you've worked for the U.S. Navy and Marine intelligence groups, you've done uh, various things in the government for 25 years, in a, uh, I guess I would call this a national security uh, capacity. You've worked in uh, uh, in the uh, cyber security area for quite a long time, and now you're in the process of running for a U.S. Uh, Congress seat in uh, the state of West Virginia. So uh, you're certainly welcome to this program. I can tell you that, and uh, I'm really tickled to have you on. Well, thank you so much for having me on here. And, uh, uh, you know, I was listening as uh, Steve was talking and he made a lot of really, really great points. Uh, I have a, a absolute utmost respect for him, uh, him as well as uh, Kyle Seraphim and uh, O'Doyle and many of the other whistleblowers that have come out of the FBI of late. Uh, I'm, I'm so pleased to see, you know, these men that are standing up. Um, you know, he hit on something that I thought was extremely important, which is that, you know, it's perfectly understandable for somebody to you know be concerned and be afraid to blow the whistle because they've got you know a family to take care of and you know maybe a pension on the line and, and that sort of thing but at the end of the day and he nailed it on the head at the end of the day 
you know, those that just follow orders, you know, history doesn't necessarily look kindly on them. And, you know, this was something for me, um, you know, when I went to work for the FBI, I was at the top of my career. Uh, I had, I had been, um, uh, I, I went to the FBI from, uh, Marforce cyber Marine forces, cyber command. I was uh, working as part of a, a cyber protection team, uh, in some of the most exciting work that I've ever done, where we were going after hackers that were infiltrating our, our, uh, national critical infrastructure. And I had some really, um, extensive training, uh, with NSA on how to, you know, penetrate systems and get into them and identify hackers and remove them out of the system. And so it was, uh, it was really a great, uh, time of my career. And then I got offered, you know, twice my salary to go work for the FBI. And so I was at the highest I'd ever been paid. Um, I was leading uh, one of the largest deployments that I'd ever worked on, uh, with a vulnerability management system there at the FBI. And, you know, for the most part, it, at first I, everything seemed normal. And I, I mean, I was very excited to be there. Uh, it was clear there was a lot of liberal bent, you know, of a lot of the people working in the office, but I, I didn't care. You know, that's, that's never been an issue for me, you know, and, uh, especially working in DC, you kind of expect that, but, right. and I, and I have been a conservative for, you know, for pretty much my entire life. Um, but what bothered me was I walked in one day and I overheard a conversation that I wish I had not heard. Um, but it was a conversation between my, um, my government supervisor and one of my colleagues. And then I walked over and I said, Hey, what's going on? And, and so, uh, my government supervisor informed me uh, that he had, had, uh, uh, had heard from somebody else that there was uh, a set of transcripts from communications that were going on between the seventh floor. So these are all the you know leadership at the FBI, the the director and the deputy director, along with others. And I, I'm guessing that those others were probably Peter Strzok and and uh, and maybe even a few people from the DOJ. But they were discussing the Hillary Clinton investigations and what was words were being thrown around like treason. And this was so big, this could bring the government down. And, um, and their, their overall determination was that Hillary Clinton was going to become president and they were afraid that she would come after them. So they decided they were going to cover up criminal activity that she was, you know, conducting that she was uh, basically being accused of investigating for that they had evidence of. And so when I heard this at first, I just thought, well, you know, this is there's no way this has got to be a rumor. And, but I couldn't ignore it because I had been there for over a year and I had not heard any rumors. I mean, things were very, very quiet and tight lipped at the FBI. Everything's very much compartmentalized. So to hear something like that was very unusual. Um, but I, I had access to the, you know, FBI, uh, uh, classified network. And so I went and I just did some searches on that, uh, on that network. And I found, I did not find those transcripts. Um, however, on page 78 of the Durham report, he gets into it and talks about exactly what those discussions were that were going on. And it was exactly like, as I had heard. And, but I did go do some search, some searches. And what I found, um, was a trove of evidence, uh, primarily suspicious activity reports, what we call TSARs, um, which had come up from the treasury, uh, through FinCEN. And these had, had been initiated by the banks. They sent their activity reports to the Treasury. Treasury had reviewed them through FinCEN. They sent it up to the FBI. And then the FBI had had looked at these, had done their analysis of it, and had determined a high probability of four major crimes. And there were three field offices that were looking into it. 
You had the Little Rock, Arkansas field office. You had the New York field office and the Washington field office all investigating Hillary Clinton for four major crimes. The biggest one, which had the most documentation with, was money laundering. You also had public corruption. And you had uh, one charge of uh, securities and exchange fraud and one charge of, of terrorism financing uh, that was being investigated as well. And in every case, they had a high probability of criminal activity. They'd already been looked up by analysts. And it looked to me like they were teeing this up for an indictment. They had case numbers involved. Uh, this was not just, you know, some, you know, some suspicious activity report coming from a bank. These were verified reports by the FBI. So when I saw that, I initially thought, well, it's just a rumor. They're not going to cover up. How could they cover up something that they have case numbers involved and all these agents involved at these different field offices? That's not something that you can just cover up. Well, I was wrong. And it became obvious to me uh, when, when, uh, where it really dawned on me that this is what was going down was when you had uh, Comey went out in front of the FBI headquarters building and he had a press conference on the Hillary Clinton email server investigation. And when he went out there and he said that basically he laid out a litany of charges of what Hillary Clinton had done in regarding in regards to mishandling classified information. And then he went on, <clears throat> He went on to say that no reasonable prosecutor would bring a case. At that moment, I knew they were they were in fact going to cover things up. And what struck me about that that uh, press conference more than anything else is I've worked with classified information, I've held a top secret clearance for twenty six years, and I've worked with top secret clearance, you know, top, top secret information for a very long time. I've been read on to, um, you know, to programs that are above top secret. We call special access programs. And I'm very aware of, you know, the intricacies of them and the, the seriousness of how you handle those things. And in that press conference, Comey had stated something before making the statement about no reasonable prosecutor. Um, he had mentioned that there were seven email chains that were found on Hillary Clinton's email server that had special access program uh, information in them that was classified at the time of, you know, of those emails being sent. To get a SAP is what we call it, a special access uh, program. To get that out of a skiff requires you to do some things. It's not like you can just walk out with it. Uh, those files are not even kept on, you know, the, the computer servers. Uh, they're they're kept usually in a file printed out with a cover letter on it and a code name. They're kept in a steel safe and uh, GSA safe. The only person with a combination to that would be your security officer and they're alternate uh you can't just get these and look at them at your desk even in a in a um uh, a, a special compartmentalized uh, information facility or a skiff because even though i have a top secret clearance i don't have a right to know what's what's on this document or even see that document without being read onto it so typically what happens is i would go request to see that document it'd be brought into a safe room inside the skiff which basically you know, is even more secure so that I can review these documents without anybody else passing by and seeing it over my shoulder, because these are documents that could have grave damage to the United States if, you know, that information were to get released. So to think that those files, that files were with, with that, you know, information was found on that server, 
uh, tells me that somebody had to have broken the law. Somebody had to with intent. It's not a matter of, and by the way, you don't even need to be no intent to be charged with the espionage act. I mean, this is the, the irony is this is the same thing that they're trying to go after Trump over. And yet Omi said it, no reasonable prosecutor would bring a charge over something like this. So why are they bringing a charge against Trump? Because our, our system of justice is not equal justice under the law. It is a two-tiered system of justice where they, they have weaponized it against conservatives and against Republicans and, uh, and they, and, and those that are not part of the establishment, you know, party line, then those that, uh, you know, that are part of their system, those that are on the left, they, they let them get away with anything. And that is what disturbs me uh, more than anything now today. But at the time, at the time, I, I, I recognized what was going on and at, I had really, I had two choices. I could either turn a blind eye and continue to make lots of money and then have to live with that for the rest of my life. Or knowing what I know, which is that someday I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to be held accountable for the things that I've done and not done in my life. And that's the key. Too often, you know, people think of things like, well, you know, um, you know, they think of it as that I'm a good person. I don't do anything wrong. I, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I pay my taxes and I'm not out there hurting people or harming people. And they think that's enough, but you know, it's interesting because there's a difference between the golden rule and the golden mean. And a lot of people, they live by the golden mean, which is you don't do unto others what you don't want done unto you. But that's not what Jesus Christ told me to do and every other Christian, which is to do unto others what you want done unto you. It's a positive action, which means it's not just enough to not be a bad person, but you must be a good person. When you see something wrong, you need to do something about it. And in my position, I had the power and the ability to do something with it. And, I, that, and the only thing that I could do that was legal and was, was righteous to do was to take that information and take it to the proper authorities, which is what I did. And it was a, it was this very scary thing for me to do. I'm not going to lie. It was not something that I wanted to do, but it was what I felt compelled to do because I had taken that oath three times to support and defend the constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And clearly these people that were involved in this, they were domestic enemies, enemies of the constitution, enemies of the United States, because they were selling out national security for profit. That's what was going on with Hillary Clinton. A lot of the information that I turned over had to do with Uranium One and uh, in the, the sale of uh, Uranium One to Rosatom, a Russian energy company. And the FBI knew well in advance of that, that Rosatom was trying to infiltrate our uranium supply chain. So I had two major disclosures. The first disclosure, um, I took... The, the information out of the FBI had a courier card, which allowed me to carry top secret documents. And I, you know, followed all the procedures. I took that information. I set up an appointment with, um, with one of Devin Nunez's uh, senior staff members. We had a clandestine meeting um, and we talked while we drove around the Capitol for about three hours. I debriefed him on everything that was on a thumb drive where all these documents were on. They were all the financial documents in our discussion. Um, he had, uh, he, and there was a, there was a, a lot of it was related to uranium one, but a lot of it was just rated, uh, related to other secrets that had been basically, you know, uh, there was evidence of money laundering, you know, that was going on. 
uh, that was tied to, you know, certain favors, you know, pay to play type things. Mm -hmm. That's what's talked about on page 78 of the Durham report. Everything there is essentially laying out types of documents that are turned over. The intelligence report that he's talking about there, I believe, is the intelligence report that I went back in to get. And that came as a result of, of uh, the senior staffer to, to Devin Nunez asked me if I would go back in and look for an intelligence document that would indicate what the FBI knew and when they knew it prior to the Uranium One cell. And so I did reluctantly go back in. I had a week left. And so I went in and I found the document they were looking for. Uh, and it was a pretty extensive uh, intelligence file on uh, on Rossatom, specifically related to what was going on in uh, Maryland, where Rossatom was involved in a uh, bribery and kickback scheme. Uh, and you had, you know, Meckerin and uh, 10X, uh, another company called Arms, all involved in this scheme uh, that was, uh, they had a transportation contract with the U.S. government to transport uh, yellow cake uranium. And so at that time, uh, which was, I think, in 2008 or 2009, uh, you had this thing going on there, and they were trying to infiltrate, the Russians were trying to infiltrate our uranium supply chain through this company, Rossatom. So later, when the when the uh, Uranium One deal went down, uh, the CFIUS Committee, which is the, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, mm -hmm. they have to approve any kind of sale of, of any company that is involved in U.S. national security. And of course, uranium supply chain is a very important uh, American uh, you know, security issue. And so that had to get approved. And um, what, the, what it was, was uh, Uranium One was a Canadian mining company uh, that was, had contracts to process uh, U.S. Uh, uranium. And Rossatom, being a Russian company, wanted to buy it. And, uh, and the deal was made and the, and they got approved through CFIUS and the deal was that the, the uranium was going to stay, was not going to leave Canada and go to Russia. It was going to go just there and, and be used there. They knew this company was dirty, the FBI. And the thing, the problem that, with this is that Hillary Clinton was the chairman of the CFIUS committee as secretary of state during that deal. Wow. And then of course, later her husband was given millions of dollars, uh, you know, for a speech that he gave. Um, you know, in Moscow and the company that paid that bill was the parent company to Rossatom. And that was done right around that same time. The other thing that happened that was um, pretty despicable was the FBI director had a fiduciary duty to the CFIUS committee to inform them of anything that they knew about, you know, intelligence wise of why this would be a bad idea. And the person that was uh, the FBI director at that time was Robert Mueller person who was uh, his deputy was Comey. Uh, the person who was the head of the public corruption unit who knew about the Uranium One and knew all about the Rossatom uh, stuff with 10X was um, with Michael Atkinson, who, who was the head of the public corruption unit, who later became the uh, intelligence community uh, inspector general that set up Donald Trump in the... Um, you know, for impeachment over the Ukraine call. Uh, the person that was involved in, in prosecuting the case or, or leading the investigation against uh, 10X and Rossatom in, in the state of Maryland uh, was, the, was at that time U.S. Attorney Rod Rosenstein, who later was the deputy AG. And remember, 
Jeff Sessions had recused himself from everything related to Hillary, which meant that everything related to Hillary was ultimately under the charge of AG or, or sorry, the deputy AG Rod Rosenstein. So essentially everybody in my chain of command uh, from the deputy, uh, you know, AG uh, over at the department of justice to Comey, the FBI director at the time that I was blowing the whistle to Mueller, uh, the person charged with the, you know, the Trump Russia collusion investigation uh, to Michael Atkinson, the one person who as a contractor, I was supposed to go to for blowing the whistle, uh, you know, who, who was the head of the intelligence community, uh, um, you know, with, as a contractor, I wasn't afforded the WPA, the Whistleblower Protection Act, but the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act applied to me. So he was the person who I would have to go through. So I didn't, I chose not to go through my chain of command. I went out of the FBI and I took it straight to uh, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. And then when they went me, asked me to go back in and get that document, I got it. But here's the thing that happened. So, so the guy who I met with gave me a code and uh, gave me, uh, asked me to download some software that would allow me to send encrypted messages uh, to his account, which had a specific code so I can send it to him. Well, when I got out um, and with that document, I tried reaching out to him and I got cut off. I couldn't reach him. But the reason I was given that was because when he asked me to go back in, I said, well, do you want me to call you to set up another meeting or how do you want to do this? And he says, no. And he said, we have reason to believe that we are being spied on by the intelligence community and, and likely the FBI. Now, think about this for a minute. This is the the intelligence. It's the, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, which their job is oversight over the use of spy tools by our intelligence community. And yet they were afraid they were being spied on. And it turns out he was right. Uh, after I blew the whistle, uh, there was uh, a document that was released by uh, Chuck Grassley on the Senate Judiciary uh, website, where uh, it showed that the CIA had been spying on the intelligence committees to look for whistleblowers. So, so he had right to be concerned. So the thing is, is, um, I came out, I could not get a hold of him. So I got, it was my last day at the FBI. And so I was really left to, you know, in a bad situation because I, now I had a classified thumb drive that had all the original information and this new intelligence information on there. And, uh, and I couldn't walk back into the FBI, put it there. I couldn't destroy it because then again, I would be, you know, essentially destroying evidence. And so the only thing that I could do was to take it home, put it in my safe and then contact a lawyer. And so that's what I did. I, uh, I got home, I put it in my safe and I, I immediately got on the phone with, I had a, a point of contact, a, an in-between guy who, who had set me up with the appointment with the, um, with the, uh, the house Intel committee's uh, senior staff member. And so I contacted him and I said, Hey, you know, I'm in a bad situation here. They're not returning my call. And he said, yeah, I'm having the same problem. He wasn't getting a return call either. And so I said, well, I'm going to need a lawyer and I need you to find me one like now. And so he went and found me a, a lawyer who I met with and we decided to go the route of uh, blowing the whistle through the ICWPA, but we couldn't take it to Michael Atkinson because he was part of our complaint. So I was the first ever whistleblower ever in the history of the FBI to take information to the DOJ uh, uh, 
the DOJ Office of Inspector General, which was under Michael Horowitz, uh, using the ICWPA. And so we brought our information to him. Um, he reviewed the information, sent it up to Jeff Sessions, who by law was required to review it and give it a credibility rating. He refused to look at the information. So it sat there. And so the process took much longer than expected. It was supposed to take 21 days. Instead, it took you know a few months. And the reason why is because it got held up up there. So he contacted up there after my lawyer contacted Horowitz and uh, he got back to my lawyer and said, look, I've never had this happen before. It's unprecedented, but um, Jeff Sessions is refusing to look at this information and give it a credibility rating. So he saw that this was important information. He said, look, if you're willing to accept it, I'm willing to give it a credibility rating myself. And so uh, Horowitz, um, he was a man of integrity. He went and gave it a, a credibility, full credibility rating himself, and then released us and gave us authorization to deliver it to both the House and Senate Intel committees. So when we took it to the House Intel Committee, um, they looked at it and they said, uh, you know, what's the, the person's name who, you know, is going to deliver this? And I had, I had been authorized to use a code name and not give my real name. They wanted me to testify and give my real name, uh, to which, you know, I was dealing with information that implicated leadership at the FBI and possibly DOJ. I was given information, I was giving up information that, you know, of course covered Hillary Clinton and her cronies. And then also, uh, Russian intelligence assets. And so there was no way I was giving my name. That was a sure way to end up with a target on your back and end up getting killed. So I told him, I said, no, I'm not going to testify. This information speaks for itself. It's been given a credibility rating and you don't need me to testify. Well, then they didn't want to take it from me. And so they refused to take it from me. So then we went back to Horowitz and Horowitz said, ask them if I deliver it, if they will take it. That's how important this information was where you had a Democrat appointed IG willing to give it a credibility rating himself and deliver it himself. That's how serious these matters were. And so we went back to the house and we said, Hey, um, he says that he's willing to deliver it himself. Will you take it? If it comes directly from his office, they said, yes. And so they delivered it and we confirmed that they had received it. Um, we also delivered it to the uh, to the Senate, or he delivered it to the Senate Intel Committee as well. Um, although we found out later that whoever the liaison was over at the Senate Intel Committee, they took the file and shoved it in a drawer, and the Senate Intel Committee was never even given it. So what happened uh, three months after I turned it in was the House, we lost the House to the Democrats, and I confirmed um, a few months ago I was down in Florida on a reawaken tour, and um, I, by, you know, by divine appointment, I ended up up in the front row just as um, Devin Nunez was coming out on stage to speak and answer questions. And they had a guy there with a mic and I got up there in line and was, you know, got up and had the opportunity to ask him a question in front of the whole world. And I asked him, I told him, I said, I was the FBI whistleblower known as MC Poda that turned over all the documents on Hillary Clinton and Uranium One. And I would like to know what happened to those documents if you ever received them. And if anything was ever done and he, he said it in front of everybody in front of the whole, and I knew what the answer was, but I, I needed it on, on record. And he said, Adam Schiff took over and he buried the investigation. He buried it. He made sure it went away. 
And so, so that is essentially what happened four months, by the way, after I finished uh, officially going through the whistleblower uh, protection act, uh, the ICWPA uh, through Horowitz and delivering those documents, the FBI showed up at my house with 16 agents. They raided my home. Uh, I was, uh, you know, had my, my name smeared, had my job lost because I had left the FBI after I blew the whistle. I went to work for the VA and, um, but, uh, but yeah, they made sure that, you know, made my life a living hell. And, uh, you know, and it was because they wanted to, and it was clearly had nothing to do with, with trying to bring charges against me. I was never charged. I never even had not even a suspension on my clearance because I did nothing wrong, but it was done in order to, you know, to send a signal to everybody else at the FBI that you better not blow the whistle because we'll come after you with everything we can. In the end, my legal bills came to $198,000. Um, you know, and the only reason that I'm standing here today is because, and you know, and I, I credit everything with what me making out of this alive even, and, you know, and, and with my freedom intact was due to God. There's just no, there's no other way to explain it. I had two miraculous things that occurred in my whistleblowing. Uh, the first thing happened after I met with my lawyer first time, my lawyer asked me, he said, um, and this was after we had talked, he goes, are you an independently wealthy person? And I said, no. And he says, do you have rich relatives? And I kind of chuckled and I said, no. And I said, why are you asking? He said, because I'm expensive. And I said, well, how much? He said, $750 an hour. And I, and, and my face must've turned white at that point. <laughs> but I asked him, I said, can't you do this pro bono? And he says, you're going up against Hillary Clinton, the entire FBI leadership, Russian intelligence agents. He says, my law partner would throw me out of this office. If I took this case pro bono, there's too much liability in it. And so I went home that night and I'm not going to lie. I wept. I got with my wife. I thought for sure I was going to end up dead or in jail. And I was wondering, God, what have you done? You know, what have you done to me? <laughs> what have you, what have you brought me? Cause I, I believe that he wanted me to do that. You know, otherwise he wouldn't have put me in that situation, but I, I had to question him at it. And we prayed for hours and, you know, I went to bed that night and I couldn't sleep. I kept waking up every hour on the hour and I would get on my knees and pray and beg for God to get me out of this mess. And two days later, uh, Michael called me up and he said, you know, interesting thing happened. Because uh, I went down to Tennessee and I met with a woman down there who who I'd done some pro bono work for, and I thought, you know, she, you know, she is a, uh, you know, she she has a, you know, she's of means and has the ability to, you know, to to, you know, help people out. And so I thought maybe she would be willing to help you out and you know start a, a legal fund for about ten thousand dollars or something like that to get you started. And uh, apparently, when he told her about what was going on, she asked him you know, how much it was going to end up costing me likely. And he said, probably a couple hundred thousand dollars. And she pulled out her checkbook and wrote a check for $200,000 that covered all my legal funds. Wow. So that was miracle number one. And the second miracle that happened was two days later. And, uh, I was with my, um, uh, I, I'd gotten together with my lawyer. He wanted us to go down and meet with Joe to Geneva and Victoria Towson. Uh, at at uh, their office, and uh, Victoria Towson was representing the other F the other Uranium One whistleblower, who was an FBI informant that did all the collection on the 10x you know stuff, and and uh, you know was holding a lot of documents around that. So, um, so I had uh, 
we were getting ready to go in and I was so full of anxiety. I mean, I, I probably had the worst anxiety I've ever had in my life, you know? And I mean, I was literally in hiding at this point. And, um, and I, I told Michael, I just said, I said, can we pray? And he said, absolutely. And he grabbed me by the hand and, and started praying. Now, 10 years prior to this, prior to me blowing the whistle, my wife and I were living in Southern California. I was working for the Navy at the time. And we were going to this church, uh, Palm Canyon Christian church out in Moreno Valley. They had this thing where we were doing this. Um, um, basically it was a, a learning to hear God exercise where we were supposed to pray and we were supposed to fast. And then we were supposed to just sit there with a notepad and write down what we hear in that still small voice in your head. And so I did, I wrote down what I heard. And the only thing I heard was go to Sakaris. So back then that was before, you know, smartphones. So I had to get on my computer and I got on MapQuest and I'm looking for some place called Sakaris. Well, there was nowhere in the United States called Sakaris, nowhere. And uh, my wife, she even remembered this story because she was a Spanish major and she, you know, she said, well, maybe you heard wrong. Maybe, maybe what you heard was go to Socorro, which means help in Spanish. And I said, no, I know what I heard. It was Sakaris. And, but, you know, I just, I, I couldn't figure it out. So I forgot about it. So fast forward now, 10 years later, I'm sitting in the car with Michael and he says, amen. And I remember that, that time from 10 years prior. And I realized his last name is Sakaris spelled exactly how I had heard it 10 years earlier. At that moment, my fear was completely gone. I knew I was right where God intended me to be that he had my back, that he was watching over me this whole time. And I had nothing to fear. And, uh, and that, you know, so I know, you know, things didn't turn out the way I'd hoped, you know, nobody was prosecuted. Um, you know, the, the bad people got away with it, but, uh, I don't believe it's over yet. And, uh, and I don't think that it was for nothing. And I think that God still has a plan in all of this. And that is where my hope lies as much is I want to do something for this country. And, and believe me, the last thing I wanted to do was go into politics. But the reason I'm going in is because I was praying in November and I was asking God to raise up righteous men and women to run for office. See, after, after I blew the whistle, my name became known, you know, to the white house because of, you know, what I did and the Trump administration after the 2020 election asked me to come down and join a team down in Washington, DC to look into election integrity matters. Cause I had a background for 26 years in cybersecurity. So I did, I went down, I gave up all of my leave. I gave up, uh, even went into the hole. I took two months worth of, uh, you know, leave without pay. And, and I ended up working on this stuff. And again, it felt like, you know, I came to know, you know, to no end. Um, we ended up, uh, I testified on as an expert witness in seven different cases, including the one that went before the Supreme court. And then every single one of these cases, along with several others, there were 57 cases that were brought before the courts and not one court allowed for an evidentiary hearing. This whole thing, it was rigged all the way down to the courts. Nobody wanted to take responsibility and do the right thing. And I was so uh, depressed and dismayed over all of that when I went home. And, uh, and again, I prayed about it and I said, God, what is going on? And he said, the answers to your questions will be found in, in Amos chapter five. And I looked, what does it talk about in there? It talks about injustice in the courts. That's what the whole chapter is about. 
It's about God's judgment coming on the nation of Israel because of injustice in the courts. And I realized what God was saying. And the thing that said in there is it said, it said, love what is good, hate what is evil and maintain justice in the courts. And perhaps God will have mercy on, on the remnant of Israel and or the remnant of uh, Jake or Joseph. So it was to me telling me I needed to keep up the fight. I needed to keep trying to do the right thing and not give up. So this last November, after the last election and seeing a lot of the things happen in Arizona and Pennsylvania and elsewhere where nothing changed. We had the same, you know, corruption going on in the election that happened in the 2020 election. I was pretty upset again. And, uh, and so I, I prayed, I said, God, I pray that you would raise up righteous men and women to run for office. And when I did that, I heard that still small voice in my head again, say, what about you? And my initial response was, whoa, hold on a minute, God. <laughs> Haven't I done enough for my country? You know, I don't want to put my family through that again. You know, I just started my own business and it's finally, you know, we're making money. You know, is there somebody else who can do this? And so I I ended up, um, but I know better than to say no to God. So I, I tried to make a deal with him. I said, Lord, I said, I don't even see how this is possible. Alex Mooney had just won re-election as an incumbent, 70% of the vote conservative voting record, you know, I'm not going to go up against that. I couldn't go for state election because uh, it's a, a part-time type of thing where you got to take, you know, a couple months off of the year and I'm a working contractor. So that, that doesn't work for me. And I couldn't run for Senate because uh, the Senate, you have to live here for five years. And I'd only been in West Virginia for three years. So I said, I don't see any path Lord. I said, but I'll tell you what, if you make a path, I will run for office. And I thought I had bought myself six to eight years of that. <laughs> you know, I thought I, I thought I, uh, you know, I missed a bullet with that one. No, God has a sense of humor. Two days later, I'm on my computer and I'm typing in Alex Mooney's name because I needed to contact his office over a matter related to my business. And I'm typing in his name and it pops down on the Google, the little drop down. It says two seconds ago, Alex Mooney announces he will be running for the Senate seat against uh, Joe Manchin in 2024, meaning he would be vacating his seat. Mm-hmm. So my heart sank. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I uh, but I, you know, out of obedience, I, I filed my paperwork and, um, and I started campaigning. And uh, so my wife is my campaign manager. Uh, I've never done this before. Uh, I am out there campaigning. We put 16,000 miles on our car this last month, last two months. And um, I thought something was broken with my dash. It's a new car. <laughs> and I'm looking at it. I'm going, I told my wife, I said, it's saying that we, she said, hey, it's saying we need to change our oil again. I said, no, I just changed it last month. I said, how can that be? I said, something's broke. You need to take it back to the dealership. She took it down there. They said, well, uh, man, you put 8,000 additional miles on it. You need to change the oil again. <laughs> and so, so uh, we've been, uh, I spoke in 18 counties last month. Um, we have a total of 27 counties in the second district and, uh, and I'm getting out there and speaking, you know, all over the place. And uh, my work schedule is from six in the morning till two. And so at 2 PM, you know, I'm free to go and, and campaign and, uh, and, and I work from home, which makes it convenient. Um, but it is exhausting. I will tell you, it is, it's very hard. Um, I get it. I understand why politicians take the money because if you don't have to campaign this hard and you can just take a bunch of special interest money and, you know, and, and advertise it, it, I understand the, the temptation for that. Uh, I get it. It's hard. Uh, but 
I'm glad that, you know, I'm not, I'm not the establishment, uh, you know, candidate I'm running up against another guy that is, uh, and, um, uh, I am, you know, I am running a grassroots campaign and, and that's hard to do, especially in a place like this where we have a lower population spread out over a much larger landmass. And so it's a lot of ground to cover and, you know, there's nothing, but they call this the mountain state for a reason. <laughs> it's pretty much all, you know, all mountains, hills and, and haulers. And so, um, you know, we've been uh, traveling around and, uh, and the three main things that I'm running on are first and foremost, the constitution. We have to restore our country to a constitutional Republic, which means all of these violations of the constitution that are happening in the FBI and the DOJ and the intelligence community, they got to stop and people need to be held accountable. We're talking about, you had the FBI paying $3 million a year to gain access to Twitter, to censor stories, to censor accounts. That is unconstitutional. Well, what I also know that they're doing that, you know, is I think it's starting to come out now. Um, the first person to expose it was, uh, was when Elon Musk uh, was in that interview, the last interview with Tucker Carlson, where uh, he mentioned that when he took over Twitter and he couldn't believe just how much the government had access to everything. And he said, even our DMs, you know, our, our direct messages, which are meant to be private. He said, yes, even those. So I've known about that for a long time because when I was read on all these 702 FISA, all of that, when I worked for NSA with Marfor Cyber, they had all of these intelligence surveillance tools and they had all these contracts and agreements with Google, Facebook, Twitter, you know, Amazon, you name it. They, out, out there, they, if there's a big tech company, they got an agreement with them, giving them immunity. And, and I'm talking about it now because again, here it is, the government, is unconstitutionally surveilling people through these tools. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what 702 is all about. It's about all your digital records. We know that in the, uh, I think it was two weeks ago, there was a, a federal court that released that over 250,000 Americans have had illegal 702 FISA warrants opened up against them. And here's the problem with that. FISA stands for Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. It was never intended to be used on American citizens, nor even foreign mm-hmm. people who are in the United States, because in the United States, the Constitution applies. That you have federal government violating their oath of office, the people setting up these tools and abusing these tools, violating their oath of office, and, and illegally surveying, surveilling these people. It is unconstitutional, without a doubt. And it was just said so by a court who said that, uh, you know, 250,000 people, more than that, uh, in the last three years, having had these warrants opened up against them. Now, when you think about that, that's every text message, every email, every digital phone call, uh, every um, internet place that you've gone to, uh, your banking transactions, anything that's done online and done digitally, it gives you access to all of that. So when you think about that, that that's an incredibly intrusive violation of the Fourth Amendment. And in the case of the FISA court, which I believe to be illegal and unconstitutional, because you don't have representation like you do in a grand jury, there's no one representing your interests. And so nobody's defending your rights in these secret courts. But it's also, in my opinion, a violation of the Fifth Amendment. You have no due process that's happening in these cases. 
And so I want to see those things get adjudicated. We have to stop this. This is the most destructive thing to our Republic, because here's the problem. Remember when I mentioned that, uh, uh, you know, I mentioned that Chuck Grassley had released a document saying that the CIA had been spying on the intelligence committee. And then the house, uh, intelligence, uh, committee staffer had told me that they had believed they were being spied on. Mm-hmm. Well, it just so happens that when you have these types of surveillance tools available, if they're using them against our own congressmen and maybe our judges and nobody is free from being compromised by blackmail. Mm-hmm. So, the thing about this tool is it's not just that they can use it against Nate Kane, but they can use it against anybody that's an associate with me as well, which means that even if you are a good person and you don't do anything wrong and they can't find any blackmail on you, what about your kids? What about your loved ones? What about your friends? You see, I believe what's going on today, and, and this is what I, I, I fully intend on, on making it my mission in life is looking into these matters, investigating them, and holding these people accountable. I don't believe that the FBI is ever going to investigate themselves. I don't believe that the DOJ is ever going to indict themselves. And thank God our founders were wise enough to realize that they needed something in the Constitution that allowed for the the um, allowed for the Congress to create what's called an Article One Tribunal, an Article One Section Eight. They can formulate their own court. We have one already in existence for uh, matters related to several different appeals types of situations within the military, but we also have one for the U.S. tax court. And I think we need one, you know, if you will, for adjudicating these issues of abusive you know, power and deprivation of rights under color of law. That law exists. It has teeth, but it's almost never applied. And why? Because the people you would apply it against are the very people who have control over indictments and investigations. So we need a separate court, I think, to adjudicate this issue, and people need to go to jail. It's the only way this stops. Mm-hmm. How many of our congressmen are compromised you know, by blackmail or, or maybe loved ones that have, they have leverage on? How many of our judges are compromised? So the great thing about this is that these appointments for these judges are appointed by the Congress, and they don't have to be people in the judicial system now. In fact, I would say it's probably better to be people outside of it, you know, have people who are maybe retired judges or people who are, you know, retired, you know, military leaders and things like that. People who who are not part of the system that's already been tainted. And you have those people be the ones to adjudicate. And if you find out that somebody's corrupt, well, that's the beauty of this system because they're not lifetime appointed. They can be replaced. And, uh, and I, I think this is the only thing that, that is going to solve this problem. But, um, but that's number one. Number two is our national security. Our national security is the worst it's ever been in my lifetime. You have a military that has completely uh, been indoctrinated with all of this woke nonsense, transgenderism, uh, you name it. Uh, know, uh, CRT. Um, I've got a son that's in the military who I love dearly and, uh, and is not fair uh, what is going on right now. Like if we, and it's bad for the country. If, you know, our, tr- our soldiers are, are meant to be trained up. Uh, it's never been an issue of, of equal opportunity, you know, to be able to get into the military. If you are somebody that is not capable 
you know, if you have, uh, you know, either a mental illness or a physical ailment of some sort that keeps you from being able to do the job, you cannot serve in the military. That's just the way it is. And it's the way it has to be because Mm -hmm. your job may require them to give the ultimate sacrifice to give their life for their nation. And you can't have somebody who has a mental illness that doesn't know whether they are a boy or a girl or, you know, or a human being, even for that matter, uh, in the military with these kinds of mental health complications and not to mention, you know, all of this woke uh, nonsense that's being pushed there. So what it's done is it's completely demoralized the military. They're having the hardest time they've ever had trying to get people to even join. And this certainly is not helping matters. Then on top of that, you know, we've given off a huge amount of our of our um, stockpiles off to this proxy war in the Ukraine. Um, you've got, and they're not rebuilding. You know, they're not they're not rebuilding our stockpiles, and so it's left us in a position where there's some very high ranking officials that have come out and said we don't have the ability to even hold ourselves to a two front war, you know, and 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 to hold our ground. On top of that, you have the Biden administration depleted our our. Uh, you know, all the gains that we got from Trump when he was in office towards the petroleum, uh, strategic petroleum reserve have not all been drained. That is there specifically so that if we have a major war, we don't have to worry, you know, about foreign oil production to be able to support our military and things like that. So now uh, we have a depleted, uh, you know, stockpile of, of uh, petroleum. And then the last thing that I, you know, I think about all the time is that, you know, our border is wide open. You know, we've got people coming across our border and they're not just now, it's not just a matter of human trafficking. It's not just a matter of, you know, smuggling over marijuana and even heroin. They're they're sending drugs with the intent to kill us. When they make, when they take fentanyl and they mix it with xylitol so that Narcan can't even fix somebody that's been overdosed. Or when they take uh, fentanyl and they're mixing it with, uh, they're basically... They're, they're making it look like they're pressing it out uh, in little colored tablets that look like the sweet tarts candies. That's has only one purpose. And that's so that it falls into the hands of children and kills them. Cartels are working directly with China. The Chinese are actually providing the precursor chemicals to build, you know, to make these toxins that this poison that they're putting into, you know, our country. And then the current administration has is derelict of duty and they're allowing the stuff to come across the border in large amounts to the point where, you know, people are dying at the highest rate they've ever died. That the number one killer, you know, of young people today is fentanyl. Mm -hmm. That's the number one killer. And, and, uh, you know, this is a, it is a national emergency. Way more people are dying because of fentanyl than ever would have died from COVID, Mm -hmm. you know? And so this is something that I think is a national security emergency. As far as I'm concerned, they need to have the Army Corps of Engineers go down to the border, finish the wall, and we need to post military down on the border and, quite frankly, start drafting up military action plans to take out the cartel. And we should be absolutely reaching out to Mexico and other countries where all these you know people are coming from and say to them, look, either you start enforcing your immigration laws and the standards that, that are in place through international law where people who are or, you know, people who are coming to a country because of, you know, refugee status, they're supposed to go to the country nearest to them. You know, they're supposed to apply mm-hmm. at an embassy nearest to them. They can still come to America through that program, but they got to go to an embassy in their own country or in the next country over 
You know, they're not supposed to be flooding our borders and coming across illegally. We don't know who any of these people are. And I'm sure a lot of them are just good people trying to find a better way of life and trying to get into a better situation, but it isn't right. We have a, a system in this country that is designed, you know, uh, uh, to, to help people that are in, you know, in need. And uh, when people are, you know, going through a rough time to help them a safety net, it was never designed to handle the millions of people that are coming across our border. And the problem is, is that none of those people paid into that system. The American people paid into that system. You know, you look at the the things that happened up in New York where you had veterans who were using that system. You know, these are veterans who served our military, they served our country, they came back, maybe mental health problems. And because of that, you know, they're on the streets. And so they were being put up in a hotel and they got kicked out of their rooms to make room for illegal aliens coming from across the border. Now, found out i talked to um uh, representative mike boast who's the chairman of the veterans committee and i asked him what the heck was going on there and he told me he says what happened was the immigration the, the people paying the bill for for illegal immigrants they offered more money than what the you know what the veterans administration was paying and so of course you know the owner of a hotel he's he's in a business to make money so he booted out the you know the these veterans and uh, made way for to make way for these uh, illegal aliens so, you know, they got together the next week to try to, you know, rectify that. But that's the kind of, it tells you that our priorities as a country is wrong. When we're not even taking care of our veterans, but we're going to take care of illegal aliens coming across, disrespecting our laws in our own country and coming across the border. I mean, look, I, I get it. I understand. I hear their plight and I, I want, our country is, there's a lot of great people who've come to this country from another country and have, have contributed to and added to oh, sure. this great nation. I have great respect for them. Shoot, my ancestors, they came from, everybody in this country's ancestors came from somewhere. You know, my ancestors came over, you know, uh, actually, uh, you know, prior to the Revolutionary War. You know, but uh, my ancestor fled <clears throat> Ireland because uh, he he actually, he was a, he was a convict. Uh, he was, uh, he was a, uh, he escaped uh, out of prison in, in Ireland and fled to America because he killed a tax collector with a pitchfork. And, uh, <laughs> so he wasn't, you know, he wasn't that bad of a guy, but, uh, but he, he was going to be hung for high treason and he escaped with the Oglethorpes to America and then uh, mm -hmm. settled in the frontier lands of uh, district 96 in South Carolina, fought in the, you know, fought in the, uh, the battle of Cowpens. So knowing that history, and that's the other thing too, is that I have a long history of family members that have served in, in various wars, have served this country. My great-grandfather, he was a, a, a POW in both World War I and World War II. He survived the Bataan Death March in World War II, uh, was in prison for three years. I mean, I can't believe that, or I can't sit by and just ignore the fact that all these people in my family line have done all these great things for this country to make sure that what gets passed to me as a country that has freedom and think that I'm going to be able to just, you know, turn a blind eye to what's going on in our right. country. No, you know, I have a responsibility. I've got a brand new grandson that was just born incidentally on, uh, on West Virginia day. So I was pretty excited about that. I told my son, I said, you know, he's only going to get, I'm not going to sing happy birthday to him. He's going to get uh, country road sing to him on his birthday every year. <laughs> but, uh, but he is, uh, you know, he's now the next generation, you know, that's, that's coming. I want to make sure that he has the same freedoms and opportunities. And so those first two pillars of my campaign are basically built around, you know, what I swore an oath to, 
which is defending our country against enemies, foreign and domestic. Domestic being right now, I think the bigger threat, which is why that's pillar one and pillar two being those foreign enemies. You know, aren't you think about like uh, another big area of national security, which I incidentally have a lot of experience with is national critical infrastructure. When you look at all of these manufacturing plants that are exploding, catching on fire, train derailments, uh, the dairy farm that blew up and, and had, you know, 1500 cows that burned alive. When I started looking into these things, it looked very awfully familiar to some of the stuff that I was trained on at NSA, because one of the biggest areas of vectors for cyber attacks is what's known as industrial control systems. And in every case, uh, in fact, even that farm, I looked into that farm and did some reading up on it. Turns out they were fully automated. And they weren't just you know mm -hmm. milking cows. They were actually producing chocolate milk and ice cream and all kinds of stuff. They had manufacturing going on there. They had these automated um, uh, machines that would scoop up the dung of the uh, you know of the cows, mm -hmm. and they were processing that into methane and creating electricity off of a methane generator generator, which was basically producing electricity for the. And, they, and the reason I know about this is because they they had a newspaper article or a magazine article about all of their advanced technology just a year before. And so I believe what happened in, in all of these cases, I think it was a cyber warfare attack. I think they've been, you know, pushing and pressing and, and using these techniques to break into, you know, our national critical infrastructure and damage it. And I know a little bit about that because that's mm -hmm. the team I was trained to, you know, to, to be on, to defend against that. So that's another area that I think has to be covered in national security. Um, the third thing is prosperity, you know, and the reality is I'm becoming much more and more every, every day that I read into, and I see what's going on in the federal government. I'm realizing that the people need to be given more and more responsibility over their own future and their own destiny, which means that the federal government needs to deregulate a lot of these agencies, you know, that, that have a say in what goes on in the state. That they don't, those enumerated powers were never meant for the federal government. Things like the Department of Education. I think West Virginia knows how they need to raise their kids and how they need to educate them. Why does the federal government have a say in it? Or how about, you know, the EPA? You know, if it's something that maybe affects other states, sure. Okay, if the federal government wants to have some say in it, that's fine. But if it's something that's happening right here in West Virginia, we have our own EPA. We can determine what's best for us. You know, or another one is, uh, you know, this one I'll never understand the ATF. Why does the ATF, you know, alcohol, tobacco and firearms, why do they have any say over, over weapons? You know, the constitution, mm -hmm. the second amendment seems pretty dang clear. Shall not infringe. And yet they're making rules. They're not legislators, but they're making rules on what is an illegal gun and what is an, you know, an acceptable gun. And you know, as far as I'm concerned, ATF, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, that sounds more like a convenience store, you know, not a government <laughs> agency. You know, so well, Nate, I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna say something here. You're sure. absolutely right, but the uh uh the fourth estate, the administrative state now has more power without mm -hmm. question than all the other branches of government put together. And as a matter of fact, they really are the tail wagging the dog. Well, here's the problem. You know, what you mentioned there is true, except Congress does have power. They just refuse to use it. Right. They have the power of the purse. They could defund all these agencies, and they right. could. 
And I absolutely will push for that. That is something, you know, look, I'm not going into this blindly thinking that, you know, I'm going to be able to go in and do all these great things. I will recognize it is going to take a majority in both houses in order to get any of this stuff done. But I'm praying. And I do believe that with God's help, that things can be done. You know, there's that scripture that says that unless the Lord builds a house, those that labor, labor in vain, unless the Lord guards the city, those who stand guard are doing it in vain. And I really do believe that's part of the problem in our country is you got a lot of people who maybe mean well, people who intend well, and a lot of people trying to do good, but they're not seeking, you know, God's help in this. And we can't do this alone. It is going to take a miracle. Uh, you know, I, I recognize that. I hear people tell me all the time and they say, you know, our country's finished. You know, there's nothing we can do. And I go, you're right. There's nothing that we can do alone, but God can. And I do believe in miracles. I mentioned two miracles already to you that, to, you know, on this program that happened to me, I've seen those types of miracles happen. I've had, I had an experience and this is a little off topic, but I want to share it just because of how powerful it is. When I was a soldier and, and, uh, I was dirt poor. I mean, we were, we were eligible for food stamps, but I was too proud to go get them. And we were living in uh, Waynesboro, Pennsylvania. I was uh, stationed at uh, a underground facility and I had enough money to, you know, I bought a Turkey roaster for my wife for Thanksgiving. We had just moved and we didn't have a lot of our stuff. And so I, I bought a, a Turkey roaster pan. And then I had some car trouble, car trouble, and I, I had to spend all the rest of my paycheck on fixing my car. And when Thanksgiving came around, I didn't have any money to give my wife for groceries. And she asked me, you know, for money for, for Turkey and all of that. And I, I had to tell her shamefully that I, I didn't have any money. And I felt lower than dirt at that point in my life. And here I was supposed to be the one providing for my family and I couldn't do it. And, um, and then you know, my wife, she's a good woman. And she just, you know, she could tell, I think that I was upset. And she said, look, you know, it's no, no problem. We got chicken thighs up here in the freezer and look, I've got Kool-Aid and I got sugar over here and she opened up the cupboard and there was no sugar. And right about that moment, you know, I just kind of, I think my eyes dropped and she could tell, you know, I was not feeling good about the situation. And she said, you know what, honey, don't worry about it. We can pray and God will hear. And I, she must've been reading my mind. Cause I'm thinking it's a little late for that. You know, this was like the, the day of Thanksgiving and you know, we're supposed to get our cooking going. And, and so I was, uh, I was not having, having faith at all. And she said, you know, God knew we'd be praying today and time doesn't matter to him. And, and I didn't understand any of that at that time, but I, I just, you know, I wasn't going to be rude. And so I humored her and I bowed my head and, you know, and she prayed and, and I just agreed with her, even though I didn't really believe it. And she said, amen. And I kid you not, five minutes later, somebody knocked at my front door and there was a man who we had met two weeks ago at a church. And, you know, we were just kind of checking out different churches in the area. And so two weeks ago, we had visited this church and there's this man, one of the deacons in this church, and he has two grocery bags and a 25 pound Turkey. <laughs> and he wow. says, we're bringing this to you. Um, somebody put your name and, you know, for the church and, you know, for uh, you know Thanksgiving meal and, so we want to provide this. And my wife opened up the first grocery bag and there was a five pound bag of sugar. I broke down into tears. I, I realized at that point, God does care about us. He does look into our situation and he hears us. You know, when we faithfully pray, he hears us. And I know, I know without a doubt that God is not done with our country. You know, there's a lot of people right now that are upset. They see all the evil that's going on. Cause there's a lot of evil. Let's face it. You've got pedophilia being normalized 
in our country. You got people trying to push this at all levels of, you know, government even in some places. And it's despicable. It's the kind of things that, you know, you read about in the Bible, you know, right before God, you know, smited someplace, you know, with the, you know, hell, you know, hailstorm and, uh, you know, uh, and fire, you know, like Sodom and Gomorrah. But I also have read stories like, you know, the one of, uh, you know, Jonah, you know, he shows up, uh, you know, and, and proclaims God's judgment coming to Nineveh and they repented. And because of it, God turned away his wrath, you know, and you read, uh, even in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you saw Abraham, he was negotiating with God saying, you know, God, if there's just but a hundred people, will you save the city? And he said, yes, but there wasn't. <laughs> so finally he says, all right, go get your nephew Lot and his family and tell him to get out of there. Well, I know there's a lot more than a hundred people that are righteous in America. There may be a lot of evil right now, but there are a lot of good people that love the Lord, that are, that are good people praying, trying to do the right thing. And I know that if we continue to keep up the good fight and keep resisting evil and we pray and we ask for God's help in this, he will relieve us of this mess that we're in right now. But he is the only way. Mm -hmm. make, I'll make it clear. I don't believe that Nate Kane or Donald Trump, anybody else for that matter, can save this country except for God. Absolutely. You know, and he uses people without a doubt. He uses people to do his handiwork. But at the end of the day, there's way too many things that are going on uh, that we're not going to be able to solve this on our own. We're going to need help from on high. And our founders understood that. They understood that concept of provenance. You see it written in all of the early documents. They understood that something special was being created here in America. And that's one of the things that gives me hope is I believe that we still have a purpose on this planet. America still can be the shining light to the rest of the nations, but we've got to, you know, it's like that uh, other scripture says, you know, before you can remove the speck out of your brother's eye, you got to reverse remove the plank out of your own eye. And right now we got some pretty big planks in our eye. Mm -hmm. So, well, Nate, your, your, uh, your campaign is, is so important because I, th I, I wish that more people in government, uh, in elective office would understand what you understand. And that is that without God, your campaign is nothing. And yeah. if in fact you get into office, which I think there's probably an exceptionally good chance, you need to continue that faith yes. and do the exact thing that he's telling you, because I think that happens to an awful lot of good people yeah. who get into uh, elective office and then they forget why God put them there. Yeah, they, I, they I agree with you. In fact, you know, I spent a um, probably about an hour, like after I realized that I was going to run you know, that, uh, and I put my paperwork and I was just sitting in my car and, and I, I was earnestly praying. And what I was praying about was that God would not let me fall, you know, because I, my biggest fear is you know, I know what temptation is. And, and I, I'm just like any other human being, I'm guilty of, of, you know, making mistakes in my life and, and falling into my own flesh and start thinking that, I, you know, it's Nate Kane and I'm the one that can do it. And, and I hope that, and part of the reason why I'm, I am boldly talking about, God and talking about his involvement in this is because I'm hoping that there will be people who will hold me to that. And that will remind me, Nate, remember when you ran, you said that this was about God, not about you. And, uh, and I know there will be temptations. I know that there will be a temptation to, you know, join the club and, you know, become, uh, you know, like I said, take the easy road, 
you know, and take the money and, and uh, not campaign so far. What's great is, is because I don't have all of this massive infrastructure, you know, of uh campaign and we don't have a political advisor advising me. I'm out there literally just, I go to a place, I talk to people and overwhelmingly they're telling me they're going to vote for me overwhelmingly. Mm -hmm. But before I show up, I'm praying and I'm saying, God, anoint my lips and help me to find favor, you know, uh, lead me to the right places. We went up to, um, we were supposed to, I was supposed to speak last night at, uh, in Grafton and we, we didn't read our last email from them that they had canceled the meeting. And so we went up there for the GOP meeting and we get to the restaurant and everything's closed. And we're like, did we miss something? And it's a three hour drive. So I was a little upset, but you know, I, I kept my cool and some, my wife, you know, she's like, oh, let me look at my emails. And she saw, you know, I should have read it all the way to the end. And at the very end, it said, you know, that they were canceling the meeting. So, you know, so I just said, well, I guess, you know, there's God has another reason for us being out here. So we were driving back and as we're, you know, cutting through this really rural area uh, up in Preston County, there was a, there was a bunch of cars around this uh, free Methodist, uh, you know, church building that was up there. And, and I said, well, I said, let's go find out what they're doing. So we pulled down the street and my wife said, well, I'm game. And so we pulled down the street and somebody was walking up and I rolled down my window and my car's all decked out with all of the signs and everything else. So I'm, I'm always half like suspicious that somebody's going to spit at me, you know, rather than <laughs> you know, welcome me. But, but I, I just said, I said, Hey, what's going on here? And she said, Oh, we're, we're this is actually a family camp. You know, it's a, a Christian camp up here. And, uh, and I said, Oh, cool. I said, that's great. She says, do you want to join us? And I said, I, I said, uh, I'd love to. And so they had a 7 PM, they had this meeting there. And so we, we parked our car and we went into the meeting and met, you know, a couple hundred people that were in there. And I mean, it was just a great opportunity to, you know, get to know people. And I didn't campaign, you know, really, I just, you know, just talked to folks and, and enjoyed, you know, spending some time with them, fellowshipping with them. And it was awesome. And so this is the kind of, that's the kind of campaign I'm running. I'm really, you know, kind of all over the place. And, um, I had, uh, had gone out to, um, you know, I don't hold back about what I believe about God and everything. And so when I go somewhere, you know, I, I share that part of me. It's who I am. I can't mm -hmm. separate that. And, and, uh, so there was a, a lady, um, 83 years old and, uh, she was a, a member of a, of a GOP committee up in Preston County. And she said, Hey, you know, um, afterwards she said, I really liked what, what you had to say. And I'd really like you to meet my pastor. Um, would you be willing to come out and meet with my pastors? And I said, sure. So she invited us out. So we made time on our schedule and went up there. And I thought I was going to meet with a couple of pastors. I get up there in a small little town. I think it's like 600 people uh, called Tunnelton. And we show up and there's a cardboard sign on this building and it says Kane. And then it has an arrow pointing around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, what have I got myself into? And I go inside this room and it's this old school building that um, a pastor had bought and he's going to turn it into a youth center. But he, he has this meeting up there called up with Tunnelton. And I go into this meeting and there's 40 people there. And, you know, these people, you know, I talked to them for about an hour and then we had like questions, you know, and, and answers for about an hour. And I mean, no one left. I mean, they were, you know, riveted and just, you know, asking questions. And by the end of it, every single person came up and said, they're voting for me in the primary. And this is the, what we're seeing happening everywhere we go. And so, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I'm certainly not following, you know, what, what most, um, 
you know, what most people probably do when they, they run for election, they go out and get a campaign advisor. They get an experienced campaign manager. My campaign manager is my wife. And I believe she is the perfect person to be my campaign manager for two reasons. Number one, she won't put up with any nonsense. If I start, you know, uh, if I start going down the wrong path or start thinking it's about me or start bragging, she makes sure and pulls me aside and, and, you know, and gives me a good, you know, earful. Mm -hmm. The other reason is, is that she's also, you know, she's my helpmate. She is the person that God put in my life, you know, to help me with things. And, and, um, and she is, uh, she's somebody I can't say no to at least not easily. And so like I was exhausted and tired and I wanted to cancel a meeting that was, you know, two hour drive away. And she said, she goes, you know, uh, you're going. And I said, well, I just got over being sick. I had COVID and I was just getting, you know, well, I needed another day of rest. And she goes, no, she said, these people have been waiting to hear from you. You already rescheduled once. I'm not going to reschedule twice. You're going to go and I'll drive and you can sleep on the way there and you can sleep on the way back. How do I argue with that? <laughs> so right. I don't think anybody else would have been able to talk to me like that, but she can. And so, you know, I think, uh, with people like her and I've got some great volunteers that have uh, joined our campaign and these are people that love the country and they love God and they want to see, you know, change happen. And, uh, and so, so I don't know, you know, it's, uh, it is, uh, it's exhausting. Uh, it's exciting. It's terrifying all at once. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I can tell you one thing, Nate, if you, uh, if I lived in, West Virginia, I'd be one of your strongest uh, supporters and contributors. This uh, program that you've helped us with, I mean, you're a fascinating individual, but not only that, I can tell you're uh, a dead serious and deadly sincere and a really, truly uh, focused and Christian man. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, That's it's because deal. of shows like, you know, being able to come on shows like yours and, and others that is, uh, you know, that's primarily the way that word is getting out about me. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I've had a number of people actually, um, you know, I just did a show the other night and I had somebody call me up and say, Hey, I saw you on, uh, I was on John B. Wells, uh, show. And he says, hey, I saw mm -hmm. you on John B. Wells and another person, I saw you on red pill, you know, 78. And I've done all these different shows. And whenever I do them from people that I've seen or talked to, they've reached out. And so what's happening more and more, when I first started uh, going and campaigning, I would ask somebody, I said, how many of you have ever heard you know, my name before? Well, I've stopped asking that question because when I first would go, everybody in the room would raise their hand, said they've never, you know, they've never heard of me, you know, or nobody would raise their hand and uh, maybe one person or something like that. And then I would say, how many have heard of, you know, Hillary Clinton and Uranium One? Then everybody would raise their hand, but nobody knew I was that guy. And so... Um, but now I don't even ask because now wherever, where I go, people have heard, heard about me, but it's because they've heard from other people or they've been listening to the radio and or listening to different podcasts and things like that. So, so God is, he's getting the word out mm -hmm. and all I got to do is be faithful and keep doing what he told me to do. And, uh, you know, Lord willing, I think that my life has, has, when you look at the things that I've done in my life, you look at the things that um, I've experienced, it makes sense. It makes sense that that God would put me into a position like that, but it could be that maybe I don't get elected, you know, and that uh, and that you know somebody else does, and and that this whole experience was for some other purpose. I don't know, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm running as if I'm going to get elected, and I'm and I'm doing it as unto the Lord, and giving it my you know hundred percent. So, 
Well, I think that'll be the key to it. Um, I don't want to let you escape uh, with, without uh, going back a little bit to Uranium One. And yeah, no, absolutely. I thank you for Foundation. letting me, by the way, kind of share my heart like that. So I, I don't do that very often on interviews, and I appreciate you letting me kind of go there. Oh, but, hey, um, hey. I'm, I'm, I'm open to whatever questions you have, so let's talk about it. Well, I, I Charles Ortel, you probably know Charles Ortel, but yeah. Charles, uh, he, he was uh, did a forensic audit on the Clinton Foundation, and he said that they were literally had laundered something like uh, $12 billion. And that was, I don't know how many years ago, that was uh, probably yep. seven or eight years ago when he told me that. Um, yeah. the, the level of money laundering and collusion and things that have come about uh, between Clinton, Obama, I, I'm not going to uh, let the Bushes escape this, although they're globalists, uh, yep. but they aren't quite as uh, likely to take uh, money under the table. But the Clintons definitely were, and so were the Obamas and, and the Bidens. And uh, what we see now, this level of graft and corruption at the national level, tell our viewers, if you would, uh, just exactly how deep you see this going i mean this is literally international isn't it it is it is so so here's something to keep in mind um what initiated the investigation into or i should say the suspicious activity reports from the banks in hillary clinton was peter schweitzer's book clinton cash mm -hmm. so they somebody read the book they had access to the accounts they looked at it they said oh there's some truth to what peter schweitzer said so they filed a suspicious activity report up to the you know, U.S. Treasury, and then they verified, oh, yeah, this is all looking true, and they sent it up to FBI. Um, we're now finding out that the Biden administration under uh, Representative Comer has said that the Biden administration, there's evidence that they have suspicious activity reports on Biden as well, and they had them all the way back from when he was vice president. Now, I wasn't looking for those at the time. I was just looking at the Hillary Clinton stuff. There was a comment that was made to me um, that one of the things that was said in this seventh floor meeting was that this is so big, it could bring down the government. Mm -hmm. And I never saw Hillary Clinton stuff as bad as it was as something that would bring down the government. Would it hurt the Democrats? Absolutely. Would it hurt the Democrats' chances of winning an election at that time? Of course. But it was not enough to bring down the government. Now, what we know is that Peter Schweitzer wrote a second book called Something Empires, and it was about the Biden family and their money laundering and pay to play. Well, there's also another book that he wrote talking about Mitch McConnell and his family and his mm -hmm. wife's connections. Now, you take just those three, that is enough to bring down the government, because now you're talking about the head of the Senate at the time, the vice president and the secretary of state. Uh, and one of the most powerful families in Democrat politics. So you got one of the most powerful families in Republican politics. And like you mentioned, I would not doubt that there are many other Republicans involved in this sorts of thing too. So I think that this money laundering problem, this pay to play scheme has been something that has been going on in this country for far too long. I don't know how far back it goes, but clearly it's been going on for a long time. One of the key ways that they seem to be able to launder their money is through basically charity fraud. 
Um, and they do mm-hmm. this through their foundations. You know, how many of these people have foundations and how much money flows through those foundations? You know, most foundations, you have 990 forms that people can go and investigate and look at. But the amount of money that goes through these things is unbelievable. And when you think about just, you know, something as simple as, you know, somebody can have a foundation, it can be in the name of their wife, you know, or their family members. And so they don't report it on their, you know, filings. And that's how they get away with a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I would not be surprised. And when, when did that come about the 501 C three and all of that, you know, it was the, uh, uh, John McCain, you know, the McCain fine gold. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think this was all set up intentionally for that purpose of money laundering. Uh, I think I, I really do believe that John McCain was a dirty guy. I don't, I don't Absolutely. think he was a good guy at all. And I think, um, you know, I think they've been rigging elections for a long time. Uh, I think that, um, you know, they, they do it in many different ways. I don't buy, I don't subscribe to the idea that they just hack into the elections. It's much, much more complicated than that. Um, it's a combination of, uh, ballot stuffing and, uh, sure there might be some electronic manipulation. Most of that I think is happening within the electronic, uh, the, the voter registration. Um, but there's all kinds of things that they do. Uh, to to steal an election. And they know they have everything mapped out to where they know just where they need to do it in order to you know, alter a seat. And it's much harder to do for lower level positions. Um, you know, you know, the, the House, I would say, is probably, you know, in terms of federal elections would be the hardest to rig. The Senate would be the second hardest and the president would be the easiest because, you know, it's larger pools. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, but I think that I think that uh, they've been doing that for a long time. And I think Trump disrupted that. I think that he disrupted their, you know, their, uh, you know, their scheme. He was not their chosen one. And, uh, and when he got elected, it, it threw everybody, you know, who's part of the cabal, if you will. And I consider there's people on both sides involved that to me, what the cabal is, is it's the, the unelected uh, leaders, those that, you know, put into power their puppets uh, that they can control and manipulate through blackmail or through bribery or whatever. And, uh, and Trump was not somebody that was going to be bought and he already knew their system and he played them and, uh, and they were pretty upset by it, which is why they went after him. It's clear to me that when you look at everybody who was involved in going after Trump was involved in the cover-up of Hillary Clinton's stuff, everyone, mm-hmm. everybody involved in going after Trump, from you know, from uh, Mueller to Ron Rosenstein, he's the one that signed off on all the you know all the FISAs, uh, to uh, you know, of course, Comey, uh, to Michael Atkinson, they were all involved, mm-hmm. every single one of them. So it's no surprise to me. Uh, you know, that we are where we are because they basically did everything they could to keep Trump out of his own agencies. They did not want him snooping around, looking in the FBI. And the only way to do that, to keep him out of there, was to investigate him and get him caught up in an investigation so that it would look inappropriate if he did what a president is supposed to do, which is have control over the FBI. When you hear the media saying, oh, the FBI is supposed to be an independent agency, not according mm-hmm. to the Constitution. No, the Constitution makes it clear. That's why that's why we have impeachment. Impeachment is there because the president is supposed to be in control of the FBI. And so you can't basically, you know, 
it, it's almost like, uh, you know, when you go to court, you know, your, your wife she, she can't be compelled to testify against you. Well, in the same respect, you know, the FBI really can't be compelled to go after the president um, because he's their boss. And so that's why impeachment exists, which is why we should be impeaching, you know, pretty much all of these people, you know, mm-hmm. including yeah. including the director of the FBI, including the, the, the attorney general, including Biden, including the vice president. I mean, they should all be impeached. Now, will they, would they get, you know, uh, tried? Would they get kicked out? Probably not because the Senate is not going to do that and the current, you know, Senate right now. But the fact is, is that they, it would expose the evidence. It would expose the truth to the American people. And certainly uh, it would make people think twice, you know, in the next election before, you know, rehiring all these crooked people. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm a firm believer that impeachment is the proper path for elected officials and, uh, and their appointments uh, to get rid of them. I think that that's what needs to happen. And then after they've been, you know, removed, uh, then you can possibly go back and, you know, and and bring a prosecution under a different attorney general and a different FBI director. Yeah, I agree. Well, Nate, um, let's talk very quickly because we're almost out of time. How people can uh, be part of your campaign for the second congressional seat in the state of West Virginia? How can they contribute to your campaign? How can they help you with your campaign if they happen to live in uh, West Virginia? And how can they financially contribute? So I would ask that everyone, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, live in the world, anywhere that sees this, please pray for me. That's something everyone can do. And it doesn't cost much to pray. But I am a firm believer that God hears those prayers. The second thing that I would say is um, uh, for those that are American citizens, uh, even if you don't live in West Virginia and you can't vote for me, you can contribute financially to me. As long as you're an American citizen, uh, you can contribute. And I need help. You know, I am. This is a tough fight. Uh, I'm going up against a you know an establishment candidate that uh, you know has a lot of uh, a lot of money in his campaign. Uh, I've raised you know a good good amount. You know, probably about forty thousand or so. But that's not enough. I need you know probably realistically, I need to probably raise at least about maybe three hundred thousand. Uh, in order to win this. And I think if I had that, I'll win. I will, because there's a lot of advertisement and things like that. I can reach out to as many people as I want, but you're talking, there's over 700,000 people that are a voting age in West Virginia and in my district. And, uh, and I can only reach so many of them. So the rest of them, I got to be able to reach them with billboards and advertisement Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So I do need help with that. Uh, People can go to my webpage at, uh, at natecainforwv.com. That's N-A-T-E-C-A-I-N, the number four, WV.com. And on the upper right-hand corner, uh, there is a link where you can click on to donate. So that's the the second way that people can help me. And then if you live in West Virginia, and this is really important, if you are in the second district of West Virginia, which is the whole northern half of the state, from Parkersburg on up, the eastern panhandle, northern panhandle, and if you went from Parkersburg and drew a straight line to, you know, to Grant and Hardy County, it kind of cuts straight across there with a little bit of, you know, zigzag. But that is that is the northern half. Uh, if you live in that, please come out and vote. And on May 14th, the primary is what matters. That it matters more than even the general, I would say. Please come out and vote. Tell your friends about me. You can go to my website, find out more about what I believe. 
and you can find out and get, get connected to find out where I'll be speaking at and come, you know, listen and ask questions. Uh, you can reach out if you want to volunteer. We're looking for people that will go door knocking with us and, you know, people to volunteer in our, our campaign. So uh, that's the best way to do it. And you can also reach me on social media at Nate Kane for WV on pretty much everything, Twitter, Facebook, Google, uh, True Social, Gab, Getter. If it exists, I'm probably on it. Just look for at Nate Kane for WV. Dynamite. Well, Nate, you've been a real pleasure. Uh, incidentally, I will contact you because I'd like to have you on my uh, Brighton TV program uh, in a couple of weeks. I'm, I'm scheduled out about three weeks, but I'll uh, try to see if I can get together with your wife and maybe we can get you uh, scheduled for a program there. You you are an absolutely fascinating, uh, terrific individual. I uh, God bless you, my friend. And thank, thank you. you for being such a, uh, a great patriot, having the guts to stand up and do what you've done. And uh, let's do what we can to help Nate with his campaign. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, across the plains of Texas, oh, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston, New York to LA, where there's pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand and say. There ain't no doubt I love this land.